Well, uh, turn with me in uh, Matthew chapter 1, to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And when you get there, you'll be like, what? Because this is a passage you skip in your daily Bible reading, right? This is one in First, First Chronicles 1 through 9. You skip those, and I'm just kidding. It's okay. I've done it before, too. It happens. But I do believe that uh, all of Scripture is breathed out by God. In fact, the Bible says that. And so it's all useful. It's all helpful. It can all be a way that God speaks to us and, and through which we hear the gospel. I wanted to, to say a couple things first about this passage before we read it. One is that it's helpful to us to think through who the original audience is of any passage. And Matthew is often referred to as the Jewish gospel because it was written to an audience mostly of Jewish believers. We don't know a lot about them other than the fact that they had converted to following Jesus and likely that they were ridiculed for their faith by other Jews who had not converted. And so as we read this, as we, as we hear the word of God today, I want us to be thinking about um, if, if we put ourselves in their shoes uh, of these you know, these first century Jewish Christians, uh, and we were being ridiculed for um, essentially breaking from the synagogue and, and breaking from all that history, all that tradition, and following this, this Savior, this Jesus, what would we need to believe in order to persevere in, in faith? And I, I think that what this gospel, what this, rather, this genealogy teaches us is that we would need to believe that Jesus is King, that He is Savior, and that He is coming again to make all things new. Let us hear now then the Word of God from Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Sorry, yeah, that's Jehoshaphat, right. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the, father, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. 
and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Pray with me. Father, this is your word, and we ask now that you would work through the preaching of your word to, uh, to open minds, open hearts, open eyes to the truth of your gospel, to the truth of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and cause us uh, by your word to be in awe of Jesus, to worship Jesus, and to trust Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So this genealogy is a little different from the one that you might find in Luke chapter 3. That one is what we would call a, a comprehensive genealogy in that it's, it like lists everybody. So Luke's goes all the way back to Adam and it's got like all, all the dudes. This one is not comprehensive. The one in Matthew actually, he, he leaves some people out. And the reason he does that is because he's trying to show us something with the structure of it. Um, so it's arranged in groups of 14, three groups of 14. You didn't know you were coming for math this morning, but here we are. Three groups of 14, which I think carry the two is like 42. So um, th- this is leaving people out on purpose. And so this is not like, don't come to this and be like, oh, he left out Jehuzakaisah, and, and that means it's not true. But it is. It's, it's not, the, the point is not trying to be exhaustive. The point is trying to make a point about who this is focusing on. And this genealogy has King David as its key figure. Um, it's, it's actually arranged in kind of like David's rise to power, how, how the family got to King David, and then how the family kind of, after King David, really kind of regressed, and then went to, went to Babylon, and then really fell and lost any sense of, of who the king actually is. And it's arranged in such a way that, that it actually, um, there's this thing called gematria, pretty, not, not geometry, but gematria, and, and it's like assigning numerical values to letters. You ever do that? Like you try to add up the, the letters of Neron, Kaiser, you get 666, Antichrist, all that stuff. Anyway, that kind of thing, right? So in the Hebrew, David's name, is, it doesn't have vowels, so it's just DVD, and the Ds are both four, and the, and the V is six, you add that up, you get 14 by my math. So everything about this genealogy is screaming to us, David. It's all about David, and it's... it's even, even the 14 itself, that number is 7 plus 7, which symbolically in the Bible, 7 equals a fullness. So it's a double fullness. Like David is, is the guy that is centered on, or, or actually better yet, the son of David. This genealogy points to the son of David, which what we're trying to get out here is that Jesus has the legal claim as the son of David to the throne of David. Jesus is the king. Y'all ever seen the movie the, A Knight's Tale with, uh, what's his name, Heath Ledger? So he's this poor guy, he's working for a knight, and uh, the knight dies, and, and all he wants to do is compete in these jousting tournaments, but he can't do it because he's, he's just a nobody. He's got to be a noble. So he has uh, Geoffrey Chaucer, forge for him these patents of nobility. And he takes these patents of nobility to the guys that run the tournaments. He's like, like, here you go. This proves that I'm a noble. It's fake. 
of course, but they, they fall for it and they let him compete in the tournament. Well, that's kind of what this is for Jesus. It is, it is a, a patent of nobility, except for Jesus isn't faking it. This, he is the king. He is the king of kings. And this proves that he comes from the line of kings, the line of King David. He is the fulfillment of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 13, where it says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is Jesus, the one who will sit on the throne of his kingdom forever. Uh, towards the end of Matthew, as, as we see Jesus uh, on trial unfairly with Pilate, um, Matthew 27, 11 says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. Jesus was very tight-lipped about his status and his titles in the Gospels. And so for him not to deny being the king of the Jews is tantamount to a full-on declaration that absolutely I'm the king of the Jews. Jesus is the one whose throne is being and has been established forever. So here's where I should ask or could ask, have you made Jesus your king? But I really don't like that question. And the reason I don't like that question is because it sounds like there's actually another legitimate option. You see, Jesus is your king. He is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is, there, there is nobody who has ever had authority in any time, any place, anywhere that has not been given that authority by Jesus. Even some of the bad guys. And the Great Commission, at the end of Matthew, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All of it. I mean, I can't imagine how much authority that is. But the truth is, is that we live in this world, and, it, and if you are breathing, then you live in a world of which King Jesus is king. So it's not so much if he is your king, it's, it's more a matter of will you submit to him? Will, will we submit to King Jesus? As believers, you know, we, we know this. It's like, it's up here. But then there's so many times when, when we struggle with anxiety um, because of the circumstances of our lives, because of the problems of trials of, you know, we don't know what to do in a, in a given situation, we, or we are, we're struggling with with hurt feelings or, or being hurt by other people, uh, and we become anxious. We lose patience. We, we, uh, we get defensive. We struggle with anxiety. You struggle with anxiety? I do. I once heard a theologian say that anxiety is when you pray to yourself. And that, that like, puts me on my back every time I hear that. Because it's true. We need to hear what Paul says in Philippians 4. 6 and 7. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in 
Christ Jesus. This, this word from Paul is kind of like a, a command slash encouragement for us to let go of the reins a little bit, for us to, to stop worrying, for us to, to look at the fact that if we are in, united with Christ, if we are in Christ, then, then the peace of Christ guards our hearts and our minds. And what I think, at least what that means for me in my walk, uh, is that he is reigning and ruling. And that means I don't have to worry about doing his job. I think he can do a better job than me at this reigning and ruling thing. And I think that so often we are, when we're struggling with anxiety, it's because we are trying to do his job. It doesn't work. Trust me, I've been trying it for a, for a long, long time. And he is gracious and faithful to remind me that he's got this. We can trust the king. He knows what he's doing. Well, as much as Matthew wants to put the spotlight on Jesus and his kingship, he also wants to put the spotlight on Jesus and his place as the Savior, and his role, his title as Messiah. Um, looking back at the beginning, this genealogy actually begins with Abraham, which is, again, different from Luke. Luke begins his with Adam, but, but Matthew starts with Abraham. And the reason is because Matthew wants to show us that Jesus is the one who fulfills all of the covenant promises of God, all of the covenant ob- obligations. He is, he is succeeding everywhere where Israel has failed. He is the fulfillment of Genesis 22, you know, where, where uh, Isaac, Abraham takes Isaac up on the mountain and is about to sacrifice him, and, and God says, stop, I'm going to provide the ram. In other words, I'm going to provide the sacrifice. Jesus is the one who will be that ultimate sacrifice for our sin. And in Genesis 22:18, it says, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the family be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Jesus is that offspring. He is that anointed one, that one who has faithfully kept covenant with God where everyone else has failed. And so he is the representative of the human race. And I would submit to you, if you weren't able to hear last week's sermon on justification, go back and listen to that to talk more about how he justifies us as that representative But he has succeeded where we have all failed, and so he is uniquely qualified to be the Savior. And this is good news because humanity, don't know if you realized it, humanity is in desperate need of a Savior. And all you have to do is look at Jesus' family tree to see this. So we start, I'm just going to talk through some of these names here and talk a little bit about their stories because I think that this is compelling So we start with Abraham, the father of many nations, a man of faith, a man who who Paul looks to as an example of having faith. He's also a man who twice lied about his wife, saying she wasn't his his wife. She's just my sister. And he's a man who was promised a son by God, but kind of jumped the gun and took matters into his own hands and has a son with Hagar first thinking he needed to be the one to fulfill that promise in his own way. He was a man of faith, but he was also a man who needed a savior. Jacob, I'll skip Isaac, go to Jacob. Jacob is a guy who 
kind of tricked his way into getting blessings. He, he deceived people, and, uh, but he, he becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, and those 12 tribes of Israel are born not through, not through one wife, but two wives and, and two servants of those wives. And then there's Judah, who's one of the 12. He is the one through whom Jesus comes, obviously, but he comes through a relationship with a, a lady named Tamar. Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law, and uh, his son, her husband, dies, and then his brother dies. And so under Jewish law, Judah would have had to been the one to continue the, the family line through Tamar. But Judah fails to do this, and so Tamar takes matters into her own hands. Uh, you probably know the story, but she does some some sketchy things, disguising herself so that they can have a, uh, a time together, and uh, she has a son. Well, Judah finds out and wants to kill her, wants to have her put to death until she reveals the secret. Oh, it was you. And he's like, oh, yeah, okay, you can live. So, yeah, the, the line of Judah, Jesus is the line of Judah, that Judah, <laughs> okay, um, and by the way, there are, there are five women mentioned in this genealogy, and I wanted to, to say that's extremely unusual for these genealogies. Usually, this is all about fathers, but when you see a woman mentioned in one of these genealogies, the author is trying to be very careful to show us there is something huge going on here centered around this person, and so, so we're going to highlight each of these people. Um, Rahab is the next you know Rahab, the, the, the one who welcomed the spies in Canaan and Jericho? She was spared by God and became the mother of Boaz. And uh, despite her, her questionable profession, Rahab is actually in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Um, Rahab ends up being the mother of Boaz, like I said. And Boaz marries a woman named Ruth. Now Ruth is the third woman mentioned, and she is a Moabite. Uh, and Moabites were actually known for their immorality. Uh, but Ruth abandons her gods, her Moabite gods, and, and follows the god of, in that case, Naomi, the god of Israel. Uh, she trusts God, and she marries Boaz, and she wasn't in sin in doing so. But if you read the story, you, you will notice that Ruth does some really strange things in the way she kind of proposes marriage to Boaz, and so it could have looked as though she was involved in some sort of a scandal. And so... While she is not in sin through that, there, there are questions about her you could ask. Ruth becomes the mother of Obed, Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of King David. Now, David, we know, was a man after God's own heart. But David was also a man who had some dark times. The one in particular you think of and that's mentioned here is when he was, uh, he was supposed to be going out to war, right? I mean, it was like war season, you know, the, the time when kings were supposed to go out to war, I always find that funny. Um, but he didn't fight. He stayed home, and he got idle and bored. And I think that a lot of times when we don't have a battle to fight, when we are idle and bored, we end up fighting amongst ourselves. We end up kind of tearing at our own families, at our own houses, at our own church. And so David is in this position, and, he, and he's out on the rooftop one day, and he sees Bathsheba looks upon her lustfully, and 
And there's a progression of sin and destruction that follows from there. As they get together and they end up having a child and, and David tries to cover it up by at first tricking Uriah and then actually having him murdered because Uriah is Bathsheba's husband. So David wreaks havoc on his family through his sin, and yet he is repentant. He comes back to God through the prophet Nathan. But then, of course, Bathsheba and David later have Solomon, who is David's successor. And he is wise, one of the wisest men who ever lived. But this wisdom did not keep him from falling prey to the temptations of money, of power, and of women. He pursues the gods of his many foreign wives. And in 1 Kings 11, we're told that his heart was turned from the Lord. Look, this family tree is a messed up family tree. Matthew's very obvious about pointing this out to us. And it is specifically a family tree that is characterized by sexual brokenness and the brokenness that results from that characterized by that. Why? Why would Matthew want to to emphasize the tragic moral failure of all of these people? The reason is, is he wants to make it crystal clear that the Messiah, the Savior, comes not by man's doing, but by God's doing. God delivers. It is not man. God delivers in spite of man. This family tree is so crooked, so bent, so twisted, so broken that the Son of God had to die on a tree to save it. And so there is no room for pride. There is no room for us to look at ourselves and be like, look what we did. There is only room for humility. There is only room for us to, to cling to God in faith as we see what he has done to bring about our deliverance. We are utterly dependent on Jesus to be our Savior, and that's exactly what Matthew says he is. In Matthew 1.1, the very first verse here, he tells us the subject of this genealogy is Jesus Christ. And and the name Jesus, if you don't know, is Yeshua, uh, which means Yahweh saves, God saves. And the Christ is not a last name, it's a title that means Messiah or Anointed One. And so Jesus is, is... the one through whom God saves, he is the anointed one of God. And then later in Matthew one twenty one, he tells us again why he is named Jesus. He's named Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. And the whole gospel of Matthew following is about how Jesus accomplishes that, about how he accomplishes this great salvation by his perfect life, by his sacrificial death on the cross, and by his resurrection from the dead. And the result is our salvation by faith, by grace through faith, not by our works. And it is by faith that we are not only saved, but that we are united to a new family in Christ. As this genealogy wraps up, there's a few names that you might know in the last section of 14. You might know the name Jeconiah or the name Zerubbabel, but there's a lot of names in here that you probably don't know. And the reason for that is because as the Jews return from exile in Babylon, they, they come back to, or a remnant at least, comes back to the Holy Land. And after that, there's silence from God. There, there is not any new revelation between Malachi and Matthew. And that's a period of 
at least 400 years. And the Jews, in the meantime, are a conquered people. They are a people who uh, suffer at the hands of, of several different empires. And so this line of kings, this line of the king of, of King David is, is essentially all but forgotten. It is a time where there is not much hope. Uh, people began to, to doubt that the Messiah would ever come. And that's what this genealogy highlights towards the end. That this is a, a family line that is utterly broken, that has is, that is failed because of their sin and their rebellion against God. But then it also gives hope. The structure, if we can look back at the structure again, um, there, are, there are three sets of 14 names, right? And so if you, a lot of scholars as I read were saying that you could break this down where it's not three sets of 14, but it's actually six sets of seven that, that Matthew's trying to point out here. And again, as I said before in the Bible, the number seven is symbolic of a fullness or, or of a, like the totality that God has ordained. It's exactly what God wants. And so the family line of Jesus is, is six sevens, six fullnesses, and then Jesus is the seventh seven. He is a, he is a fullness of a fullness. He is as full as a fullness can be. He is perfection. He is the one who redeems. He is the one who restores. He is the one who takes a broken, messed up, crooked family line and makes it new. He restores. He redeems. He comes to, to make all things new. And the fact that he's born at a time when this line of Israelite kings was, was essentially an afterthought actually even makes this more true. His coming is, is essentially the birth of a new genealogy. It is a, a new family. It is a new nation. It is, it's not a natural birth. It's not like Da Vinci Code or anything like that, but it is spiritual birth. Jesus talks about this in John 3 when he's meeting with Nicodemus up on the roof, and he's like, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's not a natural birth. It's a spiritual birth. And, and again, Later on, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It, it's not as if Jesus came to make a whole bunch of better versions of us. He came to breathe life into dead things and make new creations of us. And Jesus' ancestors are a witness to this. They're, they're a witness to the fact, at least a lot of them are a witness to the fact that God is a God of restoration, of renewal, of binding up that which is broken. And then, of course, it, it goes to Mary towards the end, right? Mary, the fifth woman in this genealogy. You know, she's, she's definitely not in any kind of sin in, in doing what God asked her in carrying baby Jesus. But you do have to imagine what people thought, right? I mean, people thought this was a scandal. Joseph was going to divorce her quietly, but he's going to divorce her until the angel came and said, no, don't do it. This is from God. And so it's, it's fitting that the Savior of the world comes from a family line that is embroiled in so much scandal 
and then is born to a woman who is suspected to be in scandal because of it. But instead, she ends up becoming a picture of the redeeming love of God. There is uh, an image I wanted to show. You may have seen this before. It's a painting. I found out it's actually a painting by a nun from Iowa. So that's cool. But it's called Mary Comforts Eve. Now, I don't agree with the theology of it because Mary is not the one who crushes the head of the snake. That's Jesus. But the point is, is that where, where Eve failed and where, where every other person has failed, God is bringing about restoration and redemption through, Eve, through, through Mary as a vessel. It is not Mary that's doing it, but she is a vessel through which God brings forth the Messiah. I think it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of how God redeems. She gives birth to the Savior who makes all of the sad things come untrue. And if we trust him by faith, then he is writing our names in the book of life, which is a new genealogy of sons, of daughters, of God who are united to God, adopted into his family by our older brother, Jesus, the King. So are you broken? Are you stumbling? Are you, have you wreaked havoc with your sin? Has sin wreaked havoc on you? Do you feel hopeless? Are you overwhelmed by grief? Are you mad at God? Do you doubt Him? Do you pray for something every single day for years and he doesn't answer, or at least not in the way you want? Do you feel like a failure? Do you feel like you have failed in your relationships? Have you, do you feel like you failed as a parent? On and on I could go. Every person in this room has a story of brokenness. But look, Jesus doesn't just save. Like, he doesn't just kind of you know, take away our punishment and just cut off the brokenness and then that's just it, you're, you're as you are. He redeems. He, he restores. He, Luke 4, 18 and 19, Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61. This is what he says. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came as king, as savior, to redeem and restore that which is broken. And all who have, who have ever had faith in him, all who have faith in him, they do so because they see their own brokenness, they see their own sin, they hate it, and they say, I, I cannot make this right. I am a failure. I need God, I need, God, have mercy on me. And he is merciful, so do not give up hope if you are broken and you are crying out for redemption and restoration. He can and he will bring those things about. He can and he will restore. Nothing is impossible with him. But do not let that be the limit of your hope. If all you are hoping for is redemption and restoration in this life, then that is, a, that is a limited hope. Because the truth is, is that 
God and his sovereignty does not always redeem and restore. Sometimes in this life, we are, for whatever reason, allowed to remain broken. We are, we are we're called to walk a path that, that includes no restoration, scars, broken hearts. And even those who are restored, even those who are redeemed, we're not redeemed perfectly in this life. We are put back together, but there are cracks and there are scars, and sometimes the scars do not heal, not in this life. And so what good news it is that there is a greater hope beyond this life. Revelation 21.5. This is quickly becoming my favorite verse. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Did you catch who said that? The one seated on the throne? That's King Jesus. That's the one who, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, when John sees him, he, he falls down like a dead man. He's in such awe of him. This is the the king who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he is making all things new. So, for those of us who are in Christ, I I can't remember who says this, but I I really kind of like it because it... Anyway, he says, the, the worst case scenario for those of us who are in Christ is resurrection and an eternity spent with Christ. That is the worst case scenario. Can you imagine what the best case scenario is? Like, whatever is going on, God is going to redeem it. There is going to be a day for us in Christ when that stuff is gone, when there is no more sin and there is no more brokenness. There are no more tears. There is no more pain. There is no more of this junk. It will be gone. If your hope is in anything less than that, then your hope is weak. It has limits. If your hope is in the king and in the savior, then your hope is in an unshakable kingdom. Pray with me. Father, we are a mess. We are in need of of restoration. And we look to you as our Savior, as our King, to redeem us, to restore us, and we place our hope for you in, in you. That one day you will bring about ultimate restoration when Jesus returns. And we uh, we look to you in worship. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.